question before us today, a pretty simple one. Uh, how do you rejoice? What makes you happy? How are we happy in this world where uh, we have everything but it hasn't seemed to help? We've got all the mediators that we possibly need, but there's still rockets flying out of Gaza into Ashdod, and there's still the Iron Dome that are knocking them down. That's a centuries-long battle. How are we happy when we have uh, all the things that we need to connect through Facebook or social media, but it only increases our anxiety, and the suicide rate among teens is one of the highest it's ever been. What makes you happy? Do you have to have the perfect day? Do you have to have a day at the beach? Does everything have to fall into place with all the right people and the weather being perfect for you to have one happy day? Do you need more money to make you happy? It doesn't seem to work. Bill Gates is getting divorced. He could have counsel, he could have re-engage with him 24-7. <laughs> he could pay for counselors to be around him. Second uh, richest man in the world and the first richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos, both divorced, can't find happiness. Is it food that would make you happy? Because we live in a society where you can literally pick up the phone and ask for salmon on the plank and it will be delivered to you in 30 minutes. Is that what's going to make you happy? You can get anything you want delivered to your home in a second. What's going to make you happy? Anxiety, like I said, and loneliness are at an all-time high in this country. Even with all of our second homes and even with all of our wealth, uh, the anxiety around politics, the anxiety around what the future is going to hold, uh, we're a battered and tattered bunch of people right now. So what makes you happy? There's good news. I actually have good news. Every Sunday I have good news, but I've got good news today as well. And here's the one point. It's the only point you need to know. In regeneration, we rejoice. In regeneration, we rejoice. That's what makes us happy. Let me read John chapter 3. I'm going to read some of it, not all of it. Matter of fact, I'm going to skip over the most uh, well-known verse uh, in context, is actually not the most important verse. It just got popularized in the 60s and 70s. But I'm going to read uh, verse 3, 1 through 15. I'm going to skip over that next section, and then we'll pick back up uh, later in verse 21. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come for God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that's what's born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. 
but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you did not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let's skip over to verse 22. After this, Jesus said, and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who is the bride is the bridegroom, and the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in the earthly way. He who comes from above is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. In regeneration, we rejoice. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to see regeneration through the eyes of Nicodemus. And then we're going to see rejoicing through the eyes of John the Baptist. But the main phrase you need to remember is in regeneration. That is in what we rejoice. Now, Nicodemus, we know he was a teacher of the law. Jesus calls him the teacher of all of Israel. We know he was a Pharisee. He was very well learned. He comes to Jesus in the middle of the night. We're not going to make too much of this. I've heard entire sermons on that. (laughs) which I find to be utterly ridiculous. Um, People saying, oh, he was bashful, or he was too scared, or, you know, he came in the middle of the night. No, 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 he wasn't bashful or scared. We see him two more times in the Gospel of John. In one occasion, he's rebuking the Pharisees. You don't do that if you're bashful or scared. In the next occasion, he's getting all the uh, aloes and the spices uh, with Joseph of Arimathea to embalm the body of Jesus. He was making himself very known. No, the reason why he came in the middle of the night is because uh, John is setting up this theme which he started in John chapter 1 between darkness and light. And here Nicodemus who had all the learning was still in the dark and he meets Jesus and he's the light of the world. The, The fascinating thing about this 
I think, is that Jesus received them. That Jesus didn't turn them away and say, I'll I'll meet you tomorrow at Starbucks at 3 o'clock. We can do this at a better time or day or hour. But most of the best conversations happen at night, do they not? I can't tell you how many times the honest conversations we've had when Elizabeth and I get a, a knock on the door. It doesn't happen every week, but frequently enough. And somebody needs to share something or confess something, and it's, it's never at 5 o'clock. It's always at 11. Every great youth ministry conversation I ever had was after midnight, which is why I got out of that business. I just couldn't do, I couldn't do it anymore. I need to have conversations at 2 in the afternoon. But I remember one night I was up. It was a mission trip, and I saw a light on outside this kid. Probably 2 in the morning, I walked out there, and I said, Hey, man, what's up? He had this little headlamp on. Two in the morning. He said, could you explain the gospel to me again? Led him to the Lord in 10 minutes because he was up in the middle of the night looking for light, looking for life. And here Nicodemus comes, and he's looking for the light of the world. And Jesus responds. Here's the framework of regeneration. Three times he responds, truly, truly, I say to you, I'm not pulling any punches. I'm going to tell you what you need to know. Truly, truly, I tell you these things. The first truly is in verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Ergo, it's not try harder, Nicodemus. It's not get more education. It's not do better. It's not get a fresh start. It's not get a new beginning. It's not any of that. And it's also not synergistic. It's not raise your hand, walk the aisle, pray the prayer again. That's synergistic. What regeneration is, is monergism. That's a theological term we use for it. In other words, God has to do it to you. You don't participate in it. To be regenerated, you are born again. Listen to what Thomas Boston says. He says, in regeneration, the mind is enlightened to the knowledge of spiritual things. All of a sudden, you realize there is a God out there. I, I might even still have my doubts about him. But all of a sudden, I kind of realize there is a God out there. He says, the will is renewed, and the will is cured of its utter inability to do what is good. You must be born again. You don't choose that. It chooses you. I still remember when I held Kate uh, in my arms the first time, just a, a wee little thing. You forget how small babies are until I do a baptism, and then I remember how small they are. This little kid who's going to college in the fall. <laughs> I held her in my arms. Elizabeth went to the bathroom. I couldn't think of what to do, except I just sang, great is thy faithfulness. It was the first song that popped in my head. And I walked around with my firstborn in that hospital room singing, great is thy faithfulness. Because God, you have done that. That's when we have a regenerated heart. That's what we do. Great is your faithfulness, not I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. (laughs) It's great is your faithfulness to me. We are born again. And Nicodemus says, look at his response. He says, how can a man be born when he's old? He's not being uh, caustic here. He's not being catty. He's just trying to follow the analogy. In verse 5, look at what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
Now, again, we're not going to make too much of this. I want to keep it appropriately where it is in the text. Water being cleansing or baptism, that you've got to be a part. You don't find uh, Christ. You're not validated by that by yourself. There's no, like, single spirituality. You've got to be a part of a community to see sanctification happen. Uh, we know there's exceptions uh, to that. The thief on the cross, for example, he went to heaven without being baptized. But the large uh, understanding of this text is, no, if you're regenerated, you're going to be in a Christian community. That's going to validate your testimony and see you grow. Born of water and born of the Spirit. In other words, it, the Spirit, salvation is outside of you. Uh, Jesus is not saying go into the woods and find your own spirituality. Find some enlightenment. Find some feeling within you. That's where regeneration happens. That's where uh, I live. No, he's saying all of this salvation is out of you. It's validated by this community, and it's done of the Spirit. See, sometimes we think, at least I have, all I need is to be able to live this life over knowing what I know now. People have actually said that to me. If I could just go back and live this life over, knowing what I know now, my life would be so different. And they're never too excited when I say to them, no, it wouldn't. Here's the reality. Even if you could go back to 12, 10, 9, whatever it is, and you knew what you knew now, you'd probably make worse decisions, not better ones. It might get worse for you. You don't need a new start. You don't need to go back now with your knowledge. The salvation is not in you. That's why he says in verse 6, this is what is born of the flesh is flesh. The reason you made all of those bad decisions is because you didn't walk in the spirit. You walked in the flesh. And if you're not regenerated and you go back and you can live life over again, you'll make the same bad decisions, possibly worse ones. What God is saying is you've got to be reborn. You've got to be new. You've you've got to have something happen in you that only I can do. And that's what Nicodemus said. How can these things be? How could these things be? And then Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you. And he goes on this uh, long, all through here, through verse 20, uh, or all the passage of uh, unpacking that. But really the, the, the crux is not verse 16, for God so loved the world, that we see at any, every NFL game. Um, really the crux of this passage is verse 13. No one has ascended from heaven, into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And on Ascension Sunday, what a perfect text. Ascension Day was actually Thursday. It's 40 days after Easter. We celebrate the Sunday after that. But on Ascension Sunday, what we call this, what the perfect text. What Jesus says is, how can these things be? Here's how they are. You look at me. You look at me on the cross. And you realize when you look at me on the cross, that's where salvation is, that I have died for you. And you fix your mind on things that are above. I love what Oswald Chambers says when he says, at his ascension, our Lord has entered heaven and he keeps the door open for humanity to enter. 
And then he unpacks it with an analogy, verse 14. He talks about Numbers 21, where they have this problem with snakes. And what Moses does is he fixes this snake on the pole. And if you get bit by the snake, you come and find that pole and you look at it. And then you look at it, you will be healed. That's why we get the Kadekas uh, in medical communities, which is the snake on the pole. Uh, or the curriculum is what it's called in Greek. Uh, that's the sign of healing. That comes from Numbers chapter 21. It's biblical. But just imagine in that day and age, if your two-year-old, your three-year-old gets bit by a snake or your wife gets bit by a snake, there's over a million people in that setting. You're going to grab them by the hands and you're going to say, we have to go find Moses. Where's Moses? And you're going to drag them and you're going to run through those crowds and you're going to ask everybody until you see it. And then you're going to say, now I'm healed. So here's what you need to know. Because the question you might have is, well, am I saved? How do I know if I'm regenerate? Here's theologically what you know, need to know. Regeneration precedes faith. This is actually extremely important. It's not faith that gives you new birth. It's your new birth that gives you faith. Regeneration precedes faith. So, as Thomas Boston goes on to say, believing, repenting, and the like are the product of a new nature and can never be produced by the old corrupt nature as the child cannot be active in his own generation being born. So a man cannot be active in his own regeneration The heart is shut against Christ. Man cannot open it. Only God can do it by his grace. So you know you're regenerate. You know God's work. You know you're reborn if you look at him by faith and you cry out mercy, grace. If you feel distant from him, that's a good sign because it means he's trying to pull you back. It's a good sign that you're a child. If you have your doubts, that's a good sign. Uh, it's a good sign that you're struggling and wrestling like Jacob did. If you, if you struggle with sin, but you want it out of your life, that's a good sign that you're a child because you're getting convicted and God's calling you back. All of those are good signs. If you don't turn uh, or pay any attention to God, you turn away from him and you say, I want a world without God, that's a bad sign. But if there's anything in your heart that sparks towards, I just want to look at Christ and I want faith and I need to believe and he's the only way, that's a great sign. Even with all of your struggles, temptations, sins, and doubts, that you're regenerate and born again. And just like a baby, you're going to have to grow up. You're going to have to be sanctified. You're going to have to learn more and more. You have to be more and more obedient But the very beginnings of childhood, all you get is a cry. And all you get is, God, help me. Or, God, save me. Or, I want life to be different. And all of those are signs of regeneration. Looking to him on the cross by faith is a sign of regeneration. Now, here's the next point. Rejoicing through the eyes of John. First we see Nicodemus, and then we see John, and we see John in this beautiful picture of rejoicing. Here's the situation. All these people are going to Jesus, and John's disciples are jealous of that. And so they come to him, and they say, hey, why don't you do something about this? Everybody's running off to Christ. 
But here we see that John rejoices because Christ has come. You know what keeps you from joy? Uh, The same thing that was keeping these disciples from joy. Either jealousy or envy. Uh, Let's just talk about this for a second. What's the difference between jealousy or envy? Have you ever thought about this? Uh, Jealousy is the fear of something that you would lose. Envy is the bitterness that comes with something that you lack. So if you're envious, you lack something. You see something and you lack it. That's being envious. If you're jealous, you have something that you don't want to lose. So you'll manipulate it, you'll hoard it, you'll do any number of things. Now, if you take the fear out of that, jealousy is a fear of something that you'll lose. If you take the fear out, then we can start to understand how God would say in Deuteronomy 8, for example, I, your Lord, am a consuming fire. I'm a jealous God for you. In other words, I'm not going to lose you. I have no fear of it because everything that's been given to Christ, he's not going to lose. I have no fear of losing you, but I'm jealous for you. I will never lose you. I'll never let you go, even with all your doubts and all your struggles. Well, they were envious and they were jealous. But here John the Baptist says to them, did I not tell you? In other words, did you not hear me say that I am not the Christ? Look at verse 28. You yourselves bear witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. See, John's joy is not being the center of attention. John's joy is not having to have everything go his way. John's joy is not being self-centered And that's what gives him all this joy, even in the middle of this situation where all the people are fleeing to Jesus. His own disciples are wondering what's happening. He says, I've already told you I'm not the Christ. I'm not the center of this. That solves almost everything that prohibits us from joy. A friend of mine preached this at a pastor's conference that I attended, and all pastors in the room, ministers, um, And he made every one of us stand up and say, I am not the Christ. I'm Andy Lewis. I'm not the Christ. So starting with Phil Graybill, let's go through. No, I'm just kidding. We'll start with Jeff, Merle. Who wants to go first? It was actually an incredibly humbling process just to hear pastor after pastor after pastor have to most of us with either like a martyrdom complex or a saviordom complex stand up and say, I'm not the solution. I'm not the Christ. That's what we have to do in life. He goes on with this really interesting analogy about the best man of a wedding the bride and the bridegroom, and then this person testifying at the wedding. And Sinclair Ferguson tells a story. I wouldn't believe it, but Sinclair Ferguson is not known for uh, lying (laughs) or hyperbole. He's not prone to any of that. But he tells the story of one, one year a lady came into his office and said, Dr. Ferguson, I've got this problem. What is it? Two guys on the same day both asked me to marry them. And he said, well, I don't see why that's a problem. (laughs) You get to choose. And I've never had that happen to me. But two guys asked this girl to marry her at this. Part of me thinks, how did they not know? Like, uh, there's so many problems with that. But nonetheless, she, she chose one of them. And then here's where the story turns. The guy that she turned down was the best man at the wedding. And rejoiced that his friend 
And the girl that he loved had found love. And he had joy. Dr. Ferguson said it was unbelievable to watch this guy. With joy going, I didn't win her heart, but my friend won her heart, and he won his heart. That's what John says when he says, verse 29, the one who is a bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John the Baptist, I'm simply the best man at the wedding. Watching Christ and the bride of Christ come together to see that both of them are fully loved. And my joy is in seeing that. And then from that he says, so he must increase and I must decrease. If you want joy, get that tattoo. He must increase and I must decrease. In other words, how does that happen? How does that happen in your life? What do you need to do to get God to increase? See, one thing you do is you confess your sins. That's not going to make you look great, but it's going to make Jesus look great. He increases and you decrease. But now you don't have to hide it anymore. Now you don't have to try to uh, do it by manipulate it, or you don't have to try to decrease it by yourself, or uh, you don't have to fight it by yourself. It's one way that you make Jesus look great. You ask forgiveness. Uh, You talk about him. You think about him. You meditate on what he wants, not what you want. How do you decrease? You let go of your jealousy and your envy. You're the last one in the kitchen washing the dishes, and uh, nobody has lifted a finger that night, and you've done it all by yourself. Well, you practice the presence of God. Instead of getting bitter, you sit there, and you wash those dishes, and you pray for the people at the party or your family. Because Jesus must increase and you must decrease, and that's what gives you joy. If you're constantly trying to put yourself on the pedestal or constantly trying to increase yourself or you get everything you want or you're the center of attention, you're never going to have joy. That's not the route to joy. It just makes you miserable. You've seen it. You know it in your own life. And then, number two, we rejoice because God is true. Look at what it says in verse 33. Whoever receives this testimony... Set his seal to this. Now, a seal would be something on the wax ring, on the letter, or it could be, imagine, like a coat of arms. I joked about it earlier, but it literally could be like a tattoo. Uh, you know, something that you're going to permanently put, which is going to be your coat of arms, your seal. This is what we're about. This is the phrase for our family. Here's the seal that you need to set, that God is true. That's going to bring you joy if you realize that. If you believe that by faith, when you doubt, God's true. When you can't see it, God's true. When you don't understand it, God's true. Uh, When you need perspective and you can't see what he's doing, God's still true. Set your seal to this. And no matter what happens, God is true. Because what robs you from joy, all the lies that we believe all the sound bites that we take in. I've told you before, sound bites are not enough nutrition for you to get through life. You gotta have a deeper feast of something. That there is a God who is true. The lies that this world isn't your home, the lie that you can earn your way, the lie that once you get to this stage of life or this stage of life, then you'll be happy. No, God's true. Follow him, seek him. 
and his truth. And then lastly, we rejoice because he gives the spirit without measure. Look at verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. You know what brings you uh, the lack of joy or what brings you fear? It's running out of resources. Do you know how I know that? Because we just lived through a year where we didn't have toilet paper for a while. And the anxiety and the stress that was produced with not having toilet paper. I, for the first time in my life, I got on a gas app. I didn't even know those existed. That told me where there was gas because I only had 10 miles left. And I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm a sinner like you are, probably worse. My heart was anxious. I was thinking about siphoning out my neighbor's lawnmower for a little while there. He's a landscaper. He's got one of those big lawyers. You know, I thought, I could go over there and I could just, I know how to do it, you know. Siphon that thing right in my car. He'll forgive me. He doesn't have any cameras. I thought about it. What if I can't get gas? What if I can't get to the church? All these things started to happen. We get so fearful if we think we're going to run out of some kind of resource. <laughs> Which is why Jesus says, look, you don't have to fear that. He gives the Spirit without measure. In other words, God's grace and God's mercy are never uh, rationed out. There are truckloads of it, boatloads of it, pipelines of it, pouring out the mercy and the grace and the truth of God through his spirit Anytime you need it, it will never run out. You'll never go to the throne and say, I need more forgiveness, more grace. And he'll say, you, you've met your daily quota. <laughs> you've had enough this year. He gives us the spirit without measure. He just pours it in. Like I do with salt when I cook. My wife hates that. But I'm like, I'm not measuring. I'm just going to pour this in until I like the way it tastes. God just pours in his spirit to us without measure. Now, what if we could just live with that abundance? What if we could live with the reality that it's not about us, it's about Christ, and whatever happens in our lives, God is true, and now because of his spirit, he's going to give us everything we need, and he's never going to turn us away, and all we have to do is look to him on the cross and live a life worthy of the calling. Then we can have joy. I'll close with this. Um... I went to uh, Scotland, been a couple times, but uh, one time I went to this conference, and all I wanted to do was uh, meet two of the guys I knew were there, J.I. Packer and Eric Alexander. I got to spend the whole day with J.I. Packer. Um, Had dinner with him that night, spent the day with him, had dinner with him next night. It was glorious. And we just talked about our mutual love of John Owen and jazz, actually. And then I got to meet Eric Alexander, who I consider one of the top three English preachers of the last century. And uh, top five, maybe. I just knocked him down a notch. I just, I just put him at four. I was starting to think through who else I would put, because I know you'll probably ask me. So he's four. We were at this conference, and I was walking down the aisle, and this guy came up to me, and he said, hey, you're the American, right? And I said, what gave it away? And he said, well, it's pretty obvious. I don't know why, but uh, we walked down the aisle, all the way to the aisle, and everybody got quiet. We were at the very front of this large place, and uh, we're just, I was just chatting this guy up, and I finally said, um, hey, do you want to sit with me? I, I think there's a 
place over here. And he said, no, you should, you should grab that seat. And then he turned around and he said, all right, let's begin. And it was Eric Alexander. He never told me who he was uh, until he started giving the lecture that night. And I thought, that guy was so concerned about me. He was so concerned about who I was, where I was, what I was doing, that his joy was getting to know me even though he was the lecturer for the whole conference. It wasn't about him. He must increase, I must decrease. And he preached on John 3, the whole text. I don't remember a word he said, not one word. I don't remember an analogy, I don't remember an illustration. All I remember is this. At the end of the sermon, like the last 20 minutes, because he talked for an hour, like the last 20 minutes, I remember the Holy Spirit saying to me, Andy, put down your pen and quit taking notes. You don't need more knowledge. You need just to adore your Savior. Just enjoy this moment. Just enjoy who Jesus is. Let that be your joy. Richard Wormbund, he uh, tells a story. He's a missionary. He tells a story about going into a tribe. And uh, some, one of the missionaries had a flute. And they pulled out the flute, started playing the flute. And uh, they were so good, the tribe members started dancing. <laughs> Except for uh, one person in the tribe who was deaf and thought that everybody had gone insane. Until they finally explained to him, because he had never seen a flute before. He didn't know what that instrument was. And they finally said, no, there's sound coming out of this, which is making everybody dance. But friends, may that be the case for us. In this world, I, I tell whoever will listen this, in this world where we are right now, the church of Christ was made for this. We were made for this. We're made for times of anxiety and loneliness to be the church. We're made for times where everybody's uncertain about the future and worried. We're made, the church of Christ is made for this very moment where we dance and we rejoice because our Savior is ascended in heaven and one day will return. And those who don't have ears will think that we're insane. But all who can hear the music will have a joy that's unspeakable. In the name of the Father and Son, Holy Spirit. Father, we pray now that you would make us a people of, of great joy because we're born again. And I don't mean that in the, uh, the trite cultural way that it's sometimes used to elevate above other Christians. Father, we mean that in the way that you have regenerated us. If we can cry out to you at all, even with our doubts and struggles, if we can muster words of faith to you, that's because you've worked in our lives. And now may we grow up from being infant or adolescent Christians to being uh, more like John the Baptist who realized that this world and our joy really is dependent upon you increasing and us decreasing. And it's dependent upon knowing that these words are true. And it's dependent upon knowing that you give the spirit without any measure at all. You just pour it out. So may we live by the spirit. May we think more about what you want than what we want. And would you make us in these times, in this year, 
so many problems in our culture. But, but would you make us a church that learns to dance, learns to listen, learns to live in your kingdom rather than create our own? Father, would you make us a people that are enamored by you, in love with your grace and mercy, obedient in faith, quick to repent? Would you make us a people that are a wonder to others and uh, to all who have ears, let them hear. Thank you, Christ, for what you've done in your ascension. We pray in your name. Amen. In the third stanza of this hymn of...